from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life. I'm so glad you're here. Listening in on the conversation we have every week, exploring all those things related to work and the rest of your life, your family, your community, our society, and your private self, your mind, body, and spirit. I am your host, Stu Friedman. I'm the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and the Wharton Leadership Program. I now run a management consulting and training company. It's called Total Leadership. If you visit totalleadership.org, you will find all kinds of useful information on how we help people and organizations find harmony among the different parts of life while improving performance in all of them. Yes, that's what we do. It can be done. We've proven it. You can do it. Check out totalleadership.org. New episodes of this show premiere Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM Channel 132. You can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business, as well as me at Stu Friedman. Well, I am really excited about today's show. Since the pandemic started, many of us have been working remotely, using Zoom, other platforms to coordinate, talk to uh, our coworkers, clients, suppliers, everybody. And one of the things you know, if you've been listening regularly to this show and uh, some of the scholars and others we've had talking about what people are discovering about pandemic life is that social isolation and the kind of distancing that uh, this pandemic life has created has been, has been a real problem for so many of us. My guest today has a wonderful new book that is super helpful in identifying how to connect in meaningful ways to build trust, to get stuff done, uh, no matter where you are. And that there there are an, a new set of norms, cues, signals that we need to know to be effectively communicating uh, in the new world of uh, post-pandemic life as well. Uh, Erica Dewan is the author of Digital Body Language, How to Build Trust and Connection No Matter the Distance. And we're going to be talking about her book today. Erica, welcome to Work and Life. Thank you for having me, Stu. Well, it's great to have you here, Erica. Let me just give a bit of background to listeners so they, they can know who I'm talking to today. Erica is the founder and CEO of Cotential, which is a global organization that helps companies, leaders, and managers leverage 21st century collaboration skills and behaviors to improve performance. We're kind of in the same business. She's also the co-author of the best-selling book, Get Big Things Done, The Power of Connectional Intelligence. She was named by Thinkers 50 as the Oprah of Management Ideas and featured as one of the top 20 management experts around the world by Global Gurus. Erica speaks on global stages and writes for Harvard Business Review and elsewhere. She has degrees from Harvard University, MIT Sloan, and the Wharton School, where she took my total leadership course a while ago. That's right. I'm not going to say the number of years, Erica. I'll let you do that if you want to. And when uh, I wasn't able to travel to London to receive an award for... um, well, I guess it was distinguished achievement in the field of talent a few years ago. I asked Erica to do so on my behalf, and she did. So we've been friends for a long time. Erica, it's really great to have you here. It is an honor to be a student uh, of Total Leadership, Stu, and to talk today about how your model helped inspire me to write my new book. Can't wait. Let's dig in. Uh, You know, we were, of course, communicating by email and other online platforms, and at least in some sectors of the economy, our connections to each other were increasingly cross-cultural, cross-national, cross-generational, creating opportunities for all kinds of misunderstandings and miscues. And, you know, the workplace increasingly consists of multiple generations and uh, again, so many people just don't know how to communicate, don't know how to talk to each other, don't know how to connect, uh, creating all kinds of unnecessary problems. And then, of course, the pandemic just wiped out 
much of in-person communication so that even what had been, you know, often face-to-face time went virtual on Zoom and other platforms. So your advice about how we humans can recognize and, and understand and, and use the new digital body language, as you call it, uh, could not arrive at a more propitious moment. So let's start. Uh, let me ask you to define what is digital body language? Digital body language are the new cues and signals we send in our digital communication that make up the subtext of our messages. Everything from our punctuation to our emojis to how we greet and sign off an email to our virtual video call backgrounds are not simple or trivial. They actually help others build a sense of trust and connection Mm -hmm. or erode trust and connection in our new world. Hmm. So first, if you can differentiate between written which is, uh, you know, less synchronous, right? It's less immediate response and visual auditory immediate exchanges like we're doing right now. So uh, Eric and I are on Zoom. We're recording on Zoom. Of course, listeners, you're only hearing the audio. Um, But there's obviously a difference between text, email, and, you know, the immediate face-to-face through, uh, you know, mediated through uh, through digital you know, telecommunications uh, devices like Zoom. So um, specify, if you can, the important distinctions between those two before we dig further in. Digital body language is so much more than how we show up on a video screen. It's mm-hmm. truly how we make others feel in a modern marketplace. And that can show up differently in three formats. First is our written communication, email, text, IM. And in that case, I often say we don't walk the walk, we don't talk the talk, we write the talk. In verbal communication, whether by phone or on a non-video call, we use spoken communication that uh, that is a format of digital body language. And last but not least, the visual video cues on a video call is another example of digital body language. In each of these channels, there are critical digital body language cues and signals to understand that will con- can allow you to avoid misunderstanding and create greater trust. And we're going to get into some of those specific uh, uh, guides that you provide in Digital Body Language, your wonderful new book. Uh, before we get into that, though, uh, your, your introduction in the book as to how you came to, uh, you know, through your own experience, understand the importance of digital body language is, uh, is quite compelling. Um, how did you develop your approach to how people can use digital body language to connect well. I grew up as a shy introverted girl. My parents were Indian immigrants and we settled in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And, you know, while my parents spoke Hindi at home, that meant that when I went to school, I had accented English and really struggled to find my voice, got teased in school. But one of the things that I developed because I was more of an observer was deciphering other people's body language. I would watch the popular girls with their heads high, their shoulders back, the cool kids slouching during school assemblies. And it helped me really understand, especially as I tried to and struggled to assimilate that it's not just about what we say, it's how we say it. I remember at home watching Bollywood movies and not exactly knowing what the actors and actresses were saying fully in Hindi, but studying their body language and Mm -hmm. knowing exactly what the storyline was. It developed my fascination and my passion for the importance of body language. It allowed me to, uh, you know, get great job opportunities, get great degrees like at Wharton. And in many ways, fast forward led to my path of becoming a communications and collaboration expert. But about five years ago, I kept hearing the same challenges from clients, challenges like, why is there so much misunderstanding at work now? How do we connect with different ages and working styles across Mm -hmm. different locations? And what I realized was that there was no rule book for how we communicate in a digital world where the body of our language is now different. And I realized that just like I was an immigrant to American body language as a kid, today we are all immigrants to the world of digital body language. And we need a new rule book to allow us to set new norms, to understand what was implicit before and the head nod and the eye roll now has to be explicit in a digital world. 
Yeah, and of course, you'll be probably writing a different edition of this five years from now when we are communicating through yet new media uh, that are just being invented. I'll do the so, GIFs and memes version or just the emoji version of digital body language. Oh, my God. Okay, I think I'm getting too old for this, so we really <laughs> should hang it up because this that just scares me. But, you know, I am... I'm I'm trying to learn uh, along the way, and that's that's really what we all have to do is continue to evolve and to use uh, whatever media are available to to con- connect most meaningfully with the people who matter most to us. So um, I I know that you were influenced by Deborah Tannen's work, and I I want to bring that into the conversation because she influenced my thinking a lot, and she's an alum as I am of Harper College, State University of New York at Binghamton. Yeah, so I want to shout out to Harper College, uh, Binghamton, now known as Binghamton University, uh, Deborah Tannen, one of the one of the great alum of of that school. But she tell us how how her work influenced your approach uh, to digital communication. In 1990, uh, You Just Don't Understand, written by Deborah Tannen, came out. It's been four years on the New York Times bestseller list. I was a bit too young to read it at that point when it came out, but I read it years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, as I was really becoming an adult, I think the importance of her work helping us understand both gender differences in communication, body language cues that either showcase confidence or erode trust were truly signals and cues that changed my life. Uh, You know, I have to say her work did change my life. It allowed me to find my voice and understand what builds trust versus what doesn't. I'm curious to know like an example of how you actually, you know, were changed by what she said to you. First, let me remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. So glad you're here. My guest today is Erica Dewan, whose new book is Digital Body Language. You need to get this book if you want to skill up in how you come across, how you connect, how you build trust uh, and connection, no matter the distance. So what did Deborah Tannen teach you? I'll never forget when a teacher told me that I up talk, that I always end my, my, like a question, like I just did right there and how much it signaled uh, a lack of confidence and potentially insecurity and incompetence when I was trying to build a connection with others. And she wrote, so that was, let, let me jump in here. Sorry. Um, and and I, I do that occasionally, and I know you're probably analyzing my interruption, interrupting you, and I'm feeling very self-conscious about that. But putting that aside for just a moment, yeah. um, in what, like when was that? Was that like middle school, high school, college? Like when did that teach you? I was 16 say? years old in, in uh, 10th grade okay. in high school. And my teacher told me about the work of Deborah Tannen and had me read one of her articles about gender differences in communication and the impact of up-talking. Uh, You know, I think that was the first time I really understood some of these signals uh, and how important they were. Uh, You know, I was always someone who slouched and I quickly straightened up after reading some of uh, the important cues that she talked about. I also learned that I would twirl my hair every time I was nervous with someone and I quickly stopped that behavior. I think in many ways, some of those signals and cues helped me find my voice as I went to Wharton. Mm undergrad and learned how to speak up in class, whereas I was the Indian kid that never spoke up in class before that. So you had the benefit of a teacher who had the uh, commitment to your development to give you that kind of uh, read on how you came across in in their classroom, Uh, signifying once again, the importance of educators, especially early in our lives uh, and how we really need to be investing more in education as an infrastructure uh, for the development of our nation and of our youth. Uh, so support people who support education, people. All right. En- enough with my public service announcement for now. I will come back to that, as I always do. Um, yeah. You know, that's interesting about up talk. Because I don't hear it as much as I used to hear it. Uh, have you noticed that as well, Erica, that 
Um, there's just less up talking among you know women and girls than there used to be. Stu, I actually do see up talk uh, among you know many young women, uh, teenage uh, girls, and and young women that I've worked with. I I actually think it may be there still and remain. It's still there, very much part of the culture. But what I discovered as I study gender dynamics in digital body language is similar to traditional body language biases like up talk and voice pitch. There are digital body language. Biases. In fact, one linguist ran a study that showed that if a younger female in the workplace used multiple emojis in a workplace email compared to a man at any rank level in that same workplace, the woman would be more likely to be seen as incompetent. The man would be more likely to be seen as casual or friendly. So I do think that what is important is I'm a big fan of us being more of ourselves, both face to face and online, but to be aware that there are biases that exist. And Mm -hmm. To acknowledge that and, and know our audiences when we are communicating, especially online now. That's really one of the more important messages here uh, as, I, as I read digital body language. And that is, uh, as ever, and it, it's, just, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a motif that we come back to time and time again when speaking with experts about you know, building relationships that matter in the different parts of your life. And that is to take the perspective of the other, you know, the, the persons with whom you are trying to connect. Um, and, and I want, I want to go to what it is that you advise about how to take that perspective. Um, and maybe that's a way of getting into the, the question that I'm most concerned about. And that is what is the biggest problem people face in their digital body language? Like what is the, the first thing that you want to make sure people know about why, uh, why they might be failing really to, to, to connect in ways that, that they care about? The biggest problem or challenge in digital body language is choosing hastiness over thoughtfulness. Hmm. The pressure to communicate quickly can often cause us to choose brevity over clarity, uh, leading to a lot of confusion or anxiety of others. I'll never forget one of my clients who told me a story of how he sent a message to his boss that said, do you want to speak Wednesday or Thursday for a high priority meeting? His boss responds, yes. And in many ways, Uh, I have to say reading messages carefully is the new listening, writing clearly is the new empathy. But hastiness has an even deeper problem. In fact, research shows that when we ask everyone on a video or Zoom call, who wants to share? We are more likely to simply hear from the extroverts, from hearing from those that are most senior. Uh, We often exclude introverts even more in a virtual setting. And we have to take the time to slow down, to give space for actually silence, even if it's awkward digitally, to not just reward the fastest person who responds to our email, but the most thoughtful ideas. And simple things you can do around this are sending agendas, even 48 hours in advance, gives your introverts some time to process and prepare. In your meetings, use chat tools to avoid turn-taking. Maybe say, like, everyone to share their answers in the chat first, and then I'll call on people with diverse or different ideas. I do that as a regular thing. And by the way, Erica, I I do that now, whether I'm speaking to, you know, 300 people in Latin America or, you know, 30 people in my executive MBA class at the Wharton School. And I don't know how I'm going to go back to in-person, you know, events and teaching without the chat function, because it is so good at getting everyone's voice into into the room, as it were. Um, so I, I, I hate to digress, but I, I actually need help with this. Maybe you can help me. How am I going to replace the chat function when I have to stand in front of people? One of the most common questions I'm getting is how do we do this in a hybrid world where we're either we're all back in person or some people are coming in on video screens and some of us are in the room, which also creates a level of visual Ugh, bias. That's impossible. We're, I don't, we're I don't see how you do that, but well, let me give you some ideas. So the first okay. is. Um, you know, let's infuse a virtual chat tool in your live classrooms or training sessions or keynotes where there is a projector screen share showing the Zoom chat and maybe starting off with here are three questions I like to pose. Go ahead and share your answers in the chat and it'll populate or use a virtual whiteboard and have everyone put their post-it and make sure that's up on the screen. That's good. Uh, in a way that then you can actually call on people with those visual cues. It makes right. a massive difference. 
yes. And the risk there, this, and, and then we can stop with my personal counseling session and, and get, get back to, although this is relevant for other people, yeah, right? Yeah. Very relevant. Um, the, the risk there, of course, is that when people are on, you know, some sort of digital device in a room with me speaking in the front, I'm not on a digital device and I want their full attention. And of course, you know, the rest of the group wants their full attention so that we are together uh, in a conversation, paying attention to each other and being able to respond to each other. The risk of having a digital device open for them to, you know, be displaying their responses on the chat uh, when we're in the same room together is, you know, that's a problem. So thoughts about that? It is a challenge. Uh, at the same time, perhaps you could have set points in time where everyone opens their laptop, answers mm. a couple of questions. So you're gathering all the insights maybe in the first five to 10 minutes. And then it's, you know, laptops down, let's discuss what we've seen here, what the visual is showing of this virtual whiteboard of all of these ideas. Yeah, so, so you guys, you gotta, yeah, that's a good idea. And just being explicit about your cues as to which medium you want people to be using, uh, which is, I think, an interesting example of a general question about how we choose the media that are most appropriate for any given kind of conversation, which is an exercise that you did in my class 15 years ago. I don't know if you remember it, but when you know you identified... The, the most important people in the different parts yeah. of your life, your key stakeholders at work, at home and in the community and what you expected of each other and how well you're doing in meeting those expectations. Another question that I asked you then was, which uh, form of communication do you use to, to um, connect with each of these people, either face-to-face, virtual synchronous, which is what we're doing now, and then virtual asynchronous, which okay. is, you know, from distance and and time, uh, both separated. And what percentage with each stakeholder do you use which form? Mm-hmm. So and, and that, you know, that continues to be a really useful exercise, despite the fact that, you know, back then, 15 years ago, it was uh, two options, know, were, phone calls, very <laughs> few <laughs> options compared to today. Right. So um, let it. it, it in, in just a couple minutes, how would you advise people just to be thinking about, like, when do you when do you use which medium? My general rule of thumb is when deciding which medium to use, you have mm-hmm. to analyze three factors. The first factor is the complexity of the information. The second is the urgency of the information. And the third is the familiarity with the person. Let me describe all three. First, Please. if it's high complex... Uh, complexity, know when to pick up the phone. I like to say picking up the phone is worth a thousand emails. Have that video call, have that discussion. Don't send 15 questions in a reply all email chain where people aren't going to have that space to think thoughtfully, that need the nuance of the synchronous engagement like you and I are communicating now. If it's low complex, say yes or no, don't waste people's time on a a 30-minute Zoom call when it was a quick email. The second one, uh, urgency. Do you need it in five minutes or five days? Uh, Each medium has a different urgency cue. So a text is much faster than an email. Uh, You know, a video call is slower than an expected email response or scheduling a video call may take three to five days or one week versus an email may be expected within 24 to 48 hours. Mm -hmm. And so understanding that each each channel has a different urgency cue can be helpful and make sure you're not sending multiple texts for things that aren't urgent as well, because that can really annoy people. And third, last but not least, the familiarity with that person. Is this someone you've known for many years? You can call them out of the blue, or is this someone you're trying to sell to? Maybe you need to work with their assistant to get on their calendar. And Mm -hmm. there is more of a formal format of engaging. I've also found that when you, when there's an emotionally hot topic, when, you know, when, when you feel the heat internally, emotionally, like you feel a little anxious or you, you know, worried about how this exchange is going to go, whether you might be offending the other person or be hurt by them, that it's, gen- that's when I stop writing and think, okay, I, I've got to find a way to actually talk to this person because I need a medium that's going to allow me to communicate through uh, tone of voice, through my ability to listen and respond with understanding what they're saying that, you know, that we're not tripping over some landmines. 
Um, so where does emotion come into the, your choice of medium as you see it? When we were face to face, we knew how to react if someone was on the verge of tears versus extremely right. excited about something. If we shoot out that email, we have no idea what their mindset or where they are at when they're getting it. And sometimes it can cause passive aggressive messages or confusing messages. My general rule of thumb is know when to pick up the phone. A phone call is worth a thousand emails and a thousand texts, as I said earlier. Secondly, you know, try to assume good intent. If you're seeing a repeated pattern, that's when you really need to change the virtual medium. So you're seeing a lot of upset or, uh, you know, toneless messages where you don't know what's going on. Uh, but last but not, but not least, there are certain situations where you can't call someone, uh, you know, you don't have that communication or that trust yet. Knowing how to, again, not respond and be reactive, but respond with clarity, uh, you know, saying if someone sends something that may seem passive aggressive, just respond with, you know, the deadline actually said tomorrow. I know you sent an email saying, why didn't you finish this yet? Um, can you let me know what else you need? You know, happy to jump on the phone and give mm-hmm. them that option so that you may realize that what they want to discuss is actually something different. We need to take a short break here, Erica. Um, don't go away. When we come back, I'm going to be continuing my conversation with Erica Dewan about her wonderful new book, Digital Body Language. I'm Stu Friedman. This is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Hey, welcome back to Work and Life. I'm really glad you're with us. Today, I am your host, Stu Friedman, and I am the founder of Total Leadership, a management consulting and training company dedicated to helping individuals and organizations find creative ways of producing harmony in their lives and improving performance in all the different parts. My guest today is a distinguished Wharton alum. Erica Dewan is the author of Digital Body Language How to Build Trust and Connection No Matter. The distance. Erica is the founder and CEO of a consulting firm called Cotential. That's C O T E N T I A L. All right, Erica, we're talking about you mentioned passive aggressive messages a few times. Tell us what is a passive aggressive message? As I study digital body language, I identified that one of the most common anxiety provoking causes of uh, One of the most anxiety-provoking situations is passive-aggressive messages. If you've ever gotten a message like per my last email or bumping this back to your inbox because you haven't responded yet or to reiterate- You asshole, how come you're not paying attention to me? To reiterate on a conversation we have already had dot, dot, dot. Sometimes we don't always think that others are uh, giving us the benefit of the doubt. So you're feeling the rage, but it's not quite clearly stated as to like how intense that rage is, is actually being felt by the person sending. Absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes it's just ambiguous. Sometimes it's just phrases they've used in business school or mirror from their boss. And other times it really is passive aggressive. My general rule of thumb when you get passive aggressive messages or seemingly passive aggressive messages is first, don't get emotionally hijacked. Stay in the place of reason. If you are already angry or frustrated, don't respond immediately. Uh, You know, respond when you have more clarity, even type up something, maybe leave it as a draft. Secondly, show empathy and encouragement. Sometimes actually just being impeccable in your own response Mm -hmm. helps calm the situation if Again, someone says, please do this now. Uh, You know, you can respond with, you know, I know our deadline said this is due tomorrow. Can you let me know if you'd like me to prioritize this over that? I'd be happy to. You know, thank you so much. Just do it all, damn it. You know, (laughs) you know, these simple things of responding with clarity uh, will force others to also improve their own communications. Yeah. So say more, if you will, about clarity, which is. Such an important idea. It's actually the first of your four four very helpful laws, which I encourage uh, listeners to to learn more about uh, in their reading of digital body language. But communicating, uh, well, value visibly, communicating carefully, collaborating confidently and trusting totally are the four laws. Um, Let's jump to communicating carefully, which is about clarity, care. Uh, 
you, you refer to it as the new empathy. Uh, I think back in the day when you were in my class, I was still assigning Strunk and White's The Elements of Style as a required reading in that class. Um, and, you know, I don't talk about it much on the show, but let me just say you should read The Elements of Style uh, by Strunk and White. It's a 56 page pamphlet that will change your writing life and make you a stronger, clearer, more succinct writer. Um, so, but I am very sad to report, and this is no shock to you, that people, people, uh, you know, they don't know how to write anymore. I'm just going to put it, you know, in, in an extreme and crazy way. But you know, the, the the capacity for careful writing, and you know, the care that, well, the, you know, the attention that people devote to their writing, has just gone you know, overboard, it's, 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 it's dissipated and, and it's terrible. So, so how do you advise people to take care to write with clarity when the norms and expectations for clear writing have really gone down? And also the pace of expectation of how quickly to respond. Uh I have a couple, a couple of thoughts here. Uh, You know, as, as you mentioned, Stu, the second law of digital body language is what I call communicate carefully. And what that really means is it's about creating unambiguous expectations and norms with others. It's truly communicating your mind and your mindset. And we have to remember what was implicit in traditional body language, the head nod, the shrug, shrug shoulders, the pursed lips now needs to be explicit in digital body language. So making sure, for example, an email, all of our messages have a clear ask, have a priority level, mm. showcase not just what we need, but how we feel. You know, you can say great work on this. Even mm-hmm. simple THX period doesn't feel like a thank you anymore. It feels like an acknowledgement that you got an email. So taking that extra step to communicate carefully, to show what you mean, to so wait, show so, how you feel. So it's not, it's not you know, um, email overload to acknowledge receipt of something that they know you received? No, no, no. I'm a big fan of even just killing those unneeded responses. Actually, one of my favorite acronyms I share in the book is NNTR, which means no need to respond. Put that in your email so you don't get 15 thank yous. The other thing I think is important. NNTR, people, you got that? No need to respond. Another one of my favorites is ROM. If you send something on a Saturday, but you want people to actually think about it and not rush your response, ROM means respond on Monday. But one of the things that I discovered is so that's better. That's better than uh, delaying the send until Monday morning, so that people well, think you're not working on the weekend, yeah, or just ru- ruining your weekend. And you know, if I get an email on Saturday and I there's a power dynamic, I feel like I have to respond on Saturday versus actually taking the time for my own well being and then responding on Monday. So which is better to do? Uh, let's drill down on this because it's really important for so many people. Um, should I, as a boss? If I'm working on Saturday because I just happen to be working on Saturday and I like to do that and it works for me, please don't judge me. Um, let's say I'm doing that. Uh, should I put a delay on the send until Monday morning for my staff or should I send it on Saturday and say, ROM, enjoy your weekend? What do you think? It depends on the channel. If you are Mm. communicating by email on your laptop, you may be likely to be able to schedule your messages. And I do recommend doing that for a Monday morning so they don't get lost. However, Mm -hmm. if you're on a Slack channel, they don't have a scheduling function to schedule an IM or schedule text messages. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there are cases where it just won't work, where I do recommend adding that ROM if it is not truly urgent and you want to give others some time. All right. So we were... We were on the NNTR and the ROM jag. You were and and you were saying uh, something further about um, clarity and prioritization. Yeah. Well, what I, one of the things that I think is different from Strunk and White, and and I agree, it's an incredibly important book, and in many ways, I I have thought a lot about what's the elements of style in a digital world is that we have to remember, especially emails and other chat tools, our messages are visual now. People read them like websites. So, you know, Mm -hmm. having a clear and succinct subject line, not just an R-E-R-E or no subject line, actually makes or breaks whether someone wants to open your email. They get hundreds or sometimes thousands of messages now. So clean up your subject lines and think about what you're putting in there. All right, Get to the point. 
you know, have a response time. If it's a work request, if it's urgent, and then in the body, use bold and underlined headings, use uh, bullet points, actually get to the point quickly. Don't have it as a long prose as if you're speaking to them, uh, you know, make sure it's readable and visual because that is going to increase the likelihood that others when will you, respond. So when you say visual, you mean like the layout of the yes. design like using stub heads, like a what, sorry. Like a, like a website, the way we read down websites, hmm. think about the body of your email almost like that. And, and it can make or break actually signaling executive presence in digital body language in an email um, versus a lot, you know, if you send three paragraphs and that, you know, are just long and not clear, it's much harder for someone to quickly read that because we read through emails so quickly that sometimes we'll miss things. Uh, sometimes we'll read into one word. Uh, and, and so actually using whether it's different font co- colors, bullet points, bold and underlined headings can go a long way in creating more clarity as well. All right. So communicating carefully, which I think is the second of your four laws, is the one we started with. Let's go uh, to value visibly. But before we do, let me just remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I'm, I'm having a great time talking to Erica Dewan, my former student and now rock star guru who has written a great new book called Digital Body Language how to build trust and connection no matter the distance. So value visibly, what does that mean and how do we do it? Value visibly is all about how we value other people's time schedules and inboxes. The traditional models of respect used to mean looking each other in the eye, having that firm handshake, taking our colleagues out to dinner to show that we value and respect them. But in a digital world, many of those body language cues of value are now invisible. We Mm -hmm. now infuse them in uh, formats like watching the clock, valuing people's time, starting meetings on time, ending them on time, acknowledging individual differences. Like we talked about introvert, extrovert, so that we can be inclusive and make sure that certain people are over talking in meetings and others aren't getting heard. And last but not least, Valuing visibly is about showing radical recognition. Uh, you know, imagine What's a team that? member stays up all night, works on a slide deck for you. You walk into the office, you give them a sense of uh, a smile, you thank them for their hard work, and they know that you know how hard they worked on that project. Hmm. Now, imagine this in a digital world. A team member stays up all night, sends you an email with those slides. Maybe you respond with a K period or THX period. Maybe you don't respond at all because you're just rushing through your next email and forwarding it to someone else. Imagine how devalued that team member feels with just a K period. Taking that extra step to actually say thank you, saying great work, acknowledge, give shout outs in that next Zoom call can make a huge difference because we don't have those traditional cues Mm. of appreciation that we used to. Please don't ever send, say, uh, K period to anyone ever is what you're saying, Erica. Am I right? Yes. Uh, just be be thoughtful about who you send that K period to. It could be a best friend, but but maybe not a colleague that has stayed up all night to work, work on a project for now, you. Now, why can you say K period to a best friend or, I don't know, asking for a friend, a spouse, and get away with it? In all our communications, there are two questions that guide the digital body language signals and cues that we use. The first question is, who has more or less power? Mm -hmm. If we have less power, we tend to be more formal. If we have more power, maybe we'll actually be formal or more informal, which guides if others feel comfortable using uh, different nuances. And then the second question is, how much do we trust each other? Is there high trust? Are we longtime colleagues? Are we partners? Are we family members? Or is there very low trust? It's a new relationship altogether. This guides how we read others and what signals we send. We may be much more comfortable sending a K period to someone we trust, someone where there is an existing strong relationship. So you're telling me when I get a K period from somebody who is very close and dear to me, that's actually a sign of her affection and love and trust for me? Absolutely. That's right. My life, Erica. But but if it's, you know, if, if you you are. Um, get it. You know, your team member uh, yes. you know, gets that from you. They may not feel that, right. that same cue. That's that's extremely helpful. So value visibly communicating carefully, then collaborating confidently and trusting totally. Tell us a bit about those 
third and fourth of your uh, extremely helpful laws of digital body language in your book of that name. Collaborating confidently is all about prioritizing thoughtfulness and avoiding cultures of digital groupthink. It's about creating a structure to really avoid, uh, you know, and having multiple reply all email chains with in lots of meetings with 30 people when really only six people really need to be there. Uh, it's about informing the right people at the right time, taking the time to say who really needs to be involved. How will I engage them in a way where we're not causing email overload and Zoom fatigue. Even a simple tactic to collaborate confidently is what I call the Zoom BCC. If you're having a big meeting and a lot of people are on, but maybe only three people need to stay on after you've discussed a topic, I recommend similar to the email BCC where we loop people out and create a Zoom BCC where in the chat, right, BCC, these three people, you know, you can leave or stay as you like. And it creates the sense of actually valuing people's time and collaborating confidently. Mm-hmm. Collaborating confidently is also just simply about saying what you'll do, doing what you'll say, paying attention to those details. Uh, you know, we used to be able to rile and excite everyone through gregarious body language or, or a team town hall. Now it's simply about not having team members have to chase you down for information and not mm-hmm. asking them to do something in a fire drill and then reworking it for two months because you didn't really know what you wanted at the beginning. And then last but not least, trust totally, which is the fourth law after you value visibly, communicate carefully and collaborate confidently is really about creating a sense of psychological safety. So everyone feels a safe space to speak up. It's about assuming good intent, creating virtual water cooler moments. I recommend even virtual office hours or moments where in a team meeting, everyone can share a win, a challenge of the week to break down some of those barriers. And last but not least, it's showing vulnerabilities, especially for senior leaders Mm -hmm. uh, who, when they model that vulnerability, they give permission for others to do the same. I find that the best way to do that is whenever you uh, state an opinion, a point of view, or even share, you know, information that you include in that statement um, as an executive or as a person, you know, with uh, any kind of status, or power to say, I'm sure I don't have the whole picture. What have I missed? Yeah. Uh, and to be specific about asking for what you have missed or what you got wrong or, you know, where you might have just been blind to something to explicitly ask for that uh, can be really helpful in demonstrating that uh, that vulnerability, if you will. Uh, it's, it's really more a kind of humility about, you know, the, the fact that you don't own the truth. Yeah, it's 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 actually a driver of innovation. Beth Comstock, who you know, Stu and I, we both know, she uh, had a practice at GE uh, where she would ask for bad news, and it was part of the agenda of her team meetings. What's bad news? I don't want to hear. I, normally, her team didn't want to bring her bad news. That's but a great question. It was part of the agenda, and so they knew regularly they they would be show up with bad news. Show up with bad news, and it allowed her to identify and understand what was really happening. That and- helps to explain her incredible success. You know, we only have a few minutes here, and I really need to get to best strategies for emoji use, especially for boomers. Again, asking for a friend. What? So- How and why and where and when should a person use an emoji? Emojis are like the new facial expressions. They can range from happy to sad to grateful to frustrated. And, uh, you know, to give you a fun fact, in 2015, the Oxford English Dictionary named the tears with joy emoji as the word of the year. Imagine how many professional writers were appalled by that. But it just goes to show that emojis have actually really pervaded now corporate America, similar to words like super and my bad that are now commonplace in the workplace and even commonplace among baby boomers. Emojis are actually used not just by young people. They're used by everyone in the workplace today. Yes. I, I recommend generally number one, think before you emoji. I'm a big fan of using them when there's high trust. If there's a high power gap, maybe err on the side of formality first and then know how to bring your own emotional nuance, whether it's through words or symbols or cues. 
if you are someone that has high power and you want to break down barriers, actually emojis uh, are an effective way to help others feel, especially those that are younger working for you, a stronger sense of connection, that maybe you're relatable, that Mm. you're willing to break down barriers uh, with them. And last but not least, understand that they are interpreted and used differently, uh, whether it's across genders, generations, and cultures. Uh, One study, as I mentioned, showed that Across genders, uh, you know, a woman using them could be interpreted differently than a man, even across age groups. uh, I think that if the first user of an emoji in a a relationship, a baby boomer versus millennial uh, in a workplace setting is the younger person, it may be interpreted as more informal or not as mature. But if senior leader uses them first, it's much more comfortable. And uh, one fun fact is even emojis are interpreted differently in global countries. In fact, the the thumbs up emoji and the U.S. is an acknowledgement. It's praise in countries like Iran and Afghanistan. The thumbs up emoji is actually vulgar or offensive. It means to sit on it. You so know, you have to be I, conscious of this. I actually did that with a group from the Middle East like last week, and it it was not good for me <laughs> and for the for my relationship with that client. But but so I learned that one the hard way. Uh, so you do have to be mindful of of just as you know anytime you're traveling to another part of the world that that people in, you know use language and interpret symbols in different ways so uh, once again it's you know try to as just give some thought to how you're coming across to other people we only have a couple more minutes um you've got this uh, wonderful and you know, very simple uh you know style uh differentiator uh, just in a minute you know what how would you say it's useful to know what one's you know digital style preferences are? In in my work, one of the most common questions I get is, is there a way to understand my digital body language style? And one of the things that I identified was that there are digital body language natives uh, and all the way to what I'll call digital body language adapters. So digital body language natives are those that really thrive in remote work. Text I am. They hate voicemails, but they may send a voice note. They don't like phone calls out of the blue. Often them grew, often many of them grew up with an IMing or chat-like culture from middle school or high school. They tend to be not only Gen Z, but many millennials as well. Uh, but they're not only uh, millennials or Gen Zers. I know baby boomers that act like uh, digital natives. The other pers- the other side of the are our digital adapters. These are individuals that really prefer phone calls, in-person meetings, more reluctance with technology, uh, more formal, longer messages. Uh, and to, to sum it up, I'll give you an example. I'm a digital native and my 75-year-old father is a digital adapter. And when he sends me a text message, it starts with Dear Erica and ends with Love Dad. And I have to scroll through it because it's as long as a letter. And I haven't quite taught him that a text is not the same as a letter, but it just goes to show that even in the workplace, we have to assume good intent, uh, not read into messages too much, give others the benefit of, of the doubt and know when to switch the medium to get to clarity. Which is an ongoing process. Uh, and your book is very helpful in getting us a little further along. Um, when do I use all caps and when do I not? All caps can mean three different things. Actually, four, if we're going to oh. include my father again. The first okay. thing it can mean is excitement. The second thing it can mean is shouting. The third thing it can mean is urgency. And if you're my father sending a text message, un- all caps just means he doesn't know how to uncaps his text message. Oh, so one is incompetence <laughs> and the rest are expressions of emotion of some exactly. kind. Exactly. I always take it to mean I'm screaming with rage. You know, um, I. Or just the- I'm screaming. I'm screaming. And one I, of the please I lower found- it. I, I don't. You know, you're screaming. I don't need to hear screaming. Especially among women, it's more likely to be used to show excitement. Among men, it's more likely to be used to showcase urgency or screaming. And that's just one example as well of the differences that we see, uh, not only across age groups, but gender spectrums as well. Okay, I'm never using all caps. That's so that's another great piece of advice you've given me, Erica. Thank you. And I'm going to use a lot more emojis than my children would like. Because you're telling me that when I do that with younger people, that opens the door for a more informal and perhaps more, uh, you know, a, a less less hierarchical uh, yeah. exchange. Do I have that right? 
That that's absolutely right. And and I think that this is an opportunity for all of us to become self-aware of our digital body language style, to set digital body language norms with others so that we can create that sense of connection even from afar. And you know, I think I really encourage us all to be more creative, more authentic. And from that, we'll see just immense results in terms of engagement from the groups we're a part of. What's what's the best way to be like learning as you go? Like, in other words, how to get without being, you know, intrusive or burdensome to other people in, in 30 seconds. And that's all we have here. How do you how do you learn on, you know, on the in life about like what's working and what's not without being you know pedantic about it or or, you know, creating a, a problem for other people and, you know, they're having to give you feedback. Be curious instead of assuming everything is okay or that you know the answer. One of my clients runs a global team and one of her team members, Javier Buenos wasn't speaking up in Zoom meetings. At first she thought maybe he was multitasking or, or not interested. Finally, she had the curiosity to IM him. And he said, I'm having such a hard time translating three different English accents. There was a woman with an American accent, uh, a, a, a woman with a British accent, and a man with an Australian accent. And English was not his native language. And so we have to check our bias and be curious. And when we do, we will realize that there may be signals that may be eroding trust instead of creating it. That's incredibly helpful. And I think is, is really our, our theme today. And that is to be curious and, and compassionate. Uh, and that's going to lead to all kinds of benefits and how we communicate. Uh, Erica, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Please tell our listeners what's the best way for them to find out more about your book and all the other great work you're doing. My new book, Digital Body Language, is available everywhere. Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, Audible, you name it. Uh, you can also go to uh, ericaduan.com slash digital body language to get a whole set of resources and, and tools that uh, will allow you to continue to master this skill. And find me on LinkedIn and Instagram at Erica Duan. Spell that, please. E-R-I-C-A-D-H-A-W-A-N. All right. Thanks, Erica. This has been fun. Thanks, really... Stu. I'm a lifelong student of yours. Well, uh, and I am a student of yours, too, and that's the way it ought to be, right? Uh, thanks for listening to the show. Don't forget to tune in next week at 5 p.m. Eastern. If you have a question about something you heard, you can just email me, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu, or you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, on Twitter, I am at Stu Friedman, and you can find free versions of this show as a podcast a little while after it uh, airs at TotalLeadership.org, where you can also find, well, all kinds of free resources, videos, book chapters, articles, and more about how Total Leadership might be able to help you. Thanks to Patty Hall, our producer, our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Stu Friedman. You've been listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Sirius XM 132.